0: one of Europe's greatest monsters, one of America's greatest presidents. Parallel paths lead these men and their nations to very different final destinations in the Second World War next.
1: I'm glad of this opportunity to extend my deep appreciation to the electorate of this country, which gave me yesterday such a great vote of confidence. It is a vote that had more than mere party significance. It transcended party lines and became a national expression of liberal thought. It means, I am sure, that the masses of the people of the nation firmly believe that there is great and actual possibility in an orderly recovery through a well-conceived and actively directed plan of action. This clear mandate shall not be forgotten, and I pledge you this... And I invite your help in the happy task of restoration.
0: Hello, history lovers, and welcome to the FDR Presidential Library and Museum in Hyde Park, New York. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Now number one in podcasting, thanks to loyal listeners like you. In this episode... Our time machine travels back to the depths of the Great Depression, when two very different men rose to lead countries desperate for relief. Returning to share his historical wisdom is David Petrusia, who brings us 1932, The Rise of Hitler and FDR, two tales of politics, betrayal, and unlikely destiny. We last enjoyed the company of this award-winning historian when we discussed his books, 1920, The Year of the Six Presidents, and TR's Last War, Theodore Roosevelt, The Great War, and A Journey of Triumph and Tragedy. We also touched base on Rothstein, the life, times, and murder of the criminal genius, who fixed the 1919 World Series. Find those interviews in our archives at historyauthor.com or wherever you're listening now. David Petruccia is author or editor of a list of best-selling, award-winning books long enough to span the Maginot line, and you could probably fill in that northern part along the Ardennes forest while you're at it. These include great works, On the pivotal presidential election years, 1948 and 1960, in addition to 1920 and 1932, which we'll be talking about today. Don't forget, FDR was the vice presidential candidate in 1920. So if you pick up 1920, the year of the six presidents, or listen to our interview, you'll get to see him a dozen years before he makes that successful run for the big chair. David Petruccia has appeared everywhere from C-SPAN and the History Channel to ESPN and Fox Sports Channel. You've also heard him on fine radio shows coast to coast and around the world. He's even featured on AMC's Making of the Mob, New York. It's easy to see why he's been called one of the greatest political historians of all time. Follow him at dpetrucia on Twitter and davidpetrucia.com. That last name is spelled P-I-E-T-R-U-S-Z-A. And if you're thinking about exploring the FDR Presidential Library and Museum on your own in person, first check out fdrlibrary.org and follow them on Twitter at FDR Library. Okay, now that we've traveled back to a broken Germany and suffering America, let's join David Petrusha as the fateful die and ballots are cast in 1932. I'm joined by David Petrusha at the Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum in Hyde Park, New York, where they've been kind enough to let us sit down and record a chat about his book, 1932, The Rise of Hitler and FDR, Two Tales of Politics, Betrayal, and Unlikely Destiny. Thanks so much for meeting up with the History Author Show for this, our fourth conversation. It's always an honor and a sincere pleasure to speak with you. Good to be back. We're protective of our presidents, especially when we're sitting in one of their presidential libraries, as we are now. We have FDR all around us. There's a large bust of FDR in the hallway right outside the room that we're in. In FDR's case, he has that legacy. He wins the war. He crushes fascism. He serves longer than any other man in our executive mansion. So he earns status up there with Washington and Lincoln and those polls of greatness that they take every now and then. So, when you put him in a book with Hitler, it seems as if people might say, Well, why are you putting him there? They couldn't possibly have anything in common, as if you might be simply comparing them and contrasting them to commit that great sin of the internet, or so they say, although it happens all the time, constantly, of comparing somebody to Hitler. <laughs> so, how did you go about fitting him? somebody who's synonymous with good and with victory, with a man who's synonymous with evil and got us into this whole mess of World War
1: II. Well, their careers really intersect, and there is that thing called World War II. That's a (laughs) big thing. But also, since the title of the book is 1932, that's the year when they finally take power or fight for power. They take power, actually, in 1933, but Roosevelt has his primaries and nominating convention and campaign and election in thirty-two, And Hitler has a ton of elections in 1932. He runs for president that year against Hindenburg, Paul von Hindenburg, the aged president of the Weimar Republic, one of the heroes of World War One, And he has reichstag elections two of them parliamentary elections key they also have elections in in the localities in like the little former principalities and kingdoms of germany going off all the time during the year so it's a busy year for both of them and we contrast their early lives it's interesting that if you start calculating how much time they spent of their childhood in germany franklin roosevelt may have spent more because really, his rich father would take him to <laughs> you know vacation in germany and you know hitler was just growing up across the border sometimes he would be across the border living in bavaria and also that fdr establishes a, a not particular liking for the german people and system in his childhood I think he gets arrested for riding a bike or stealing a bike or doing something wrong with a bike, <laughs> not being in the bike lane or something <laughs> in Germany, and he's he's not too thrilled about that. I love
0: stories of people before they're a bust sitting outside of a room like we have here. I want to know them when they were little kids in the short pants, and FDR is a very interesting one because you look at those pictures and you say – well, wait, I asked for a picture of Franklin Roosevelt. Who's this little girl?
1: That's right.
0: <laughs> they dressed him like that, right? With his little... He had a American Eskimo dog, was the dog that he had. A little white, puffy dog. And you say... Well, this is the this is the boy who's going to grow up to take on fascism with those golden curls and all of that. But that's what you see, and then you look at Hitler. Even Hitler, I mean, may, I mean, I, it's it's something you don't even want to say that he was a cute baby. He's, but little, he's he was just a, just a kid, a you know, round faced, sort of shocked looking kid. Yeah, you know? no mustache, which helps, right? But,
1: you know. Hey, what do you mean by that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it's until he gets older we really see the the Hitler ness in it. You have a very un unHitlerian mustache, I will say. Well, yes. Yeah, so In 1932, the rise of Hitler and FDR, we get that early on, and you were really blessed as a historian because there's so many things that you can contrast there. Here's Roosevelt. He has all the advantages. And here's Hitler, who slept on the streets. He was a homeless. He was a, a bum. He wasn't even a citizen of Germany, never mind a member of its ruling class as FDR was. He's not born into it. He doesn't have a famous relative who was president or a famous relative who was anything. FDR goes to Harvard. Hitler can't even get into art school. I pictured him sending in those little draw Bucky things you know, <laughs> in the magazines and boy's life and stuff. But you may get into art school. Do you have talent? Do you doodle in your spare time? Hitler couldn't even do that. And not, so. Not
1: of people. Couldn't yeah, draw people right. to save his life. Yeah. Buildings. Eh, not too bad.
0: Yeah, he could draw it. He could paint the house. One afternoon, two coats, right, as uh, (laughs) they say uh, in the producers. And so, yeah, he's not much of a painter, and he's just a failure. And here's FDR, who if you had to pick somebody who you thought, well, that guy could be going places, he did have the advantages. And so I wonder, how did you go about racking up these points in the plot as you researched? I mean, it's not a novel in that sense of plot, but it must have been Something to really collate and say, wow, here's another thing where they're just polar opposites.
1: They're polar opposites. And then in some cases, in terms of the family, there are parallels. Um, Both have much older fathers and young mothers. And it's the second marriage for the the father. They have half-brothers. They're both loved very much by the mother very devoted. Hitler's mother is going to die young. Roosevelt's is not, much to the chagrin of Eleanor, I might <laughs> theorize. But then again, one is coming from immense privilege. This is not a bad place to grow up where we are.
0: Yeah, I was going to say.
1: <laughs> this is It's a big house down the road. It's got a great view of the river. He had like a ice boat, or ice yacht, and vacations, as we said, in Germany. So he's got everything going for him, and I don't begrudge him that. It's a great thing that he is, he is really so loved by his mother, and everyone should have it like that. Hitler did not have it like that, where Roosevelt got along well with his father, James Roosevelt, Hitler has very bad relationships with his father, this minor official of the Habsburg Empire. But, you know, in some ways, you know, he always keeps a portrait of his father in his office. Okay, even though supposedly things weren't good, the old man is still up there in a frame. The mother is religious. The father is not religious. Hitler is not religious. The old man works for the Habsburgs but hates the empire. Hitler hates the empire. So the apple, in some way, does not fall far from the tree.
0: Apple strudel, I guess. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Although you know, not a very oh, tasty Oh, you wouldn't want to be hit by Hitler's. that from a tree, no. <laughs> <laughs> it made me think, as you mentioned, Hitler keeping that picture there. Maybe somehow the parents that we have a tough relationship with, they're hard on us or even abusive, maybe they're even more a presence on the wall, whether their picture's actually there or not, staring down at you.
1: Or maybe it was just to stare up at him and say, Hey, I'm the Fuhrer now. <laughs> you mentioned half-brothers,
0: too, and I thought an interesting little side note is that FDR ends up being commander-in-chief, and that half-brother of Hitler's has a son, William, Willie Hitler, they call him, who's in the United States Navy. So that's kind of a strange little coincidence.
1: Yes, I think they end up, some relatives uh, who've, who have decided that they're not going to have children We're living on Long Island. Well, Hitler's sister-in-law, half-sister-in-law, was Irish, Bridget Hitler. Oh, Bridget (laughs) Hitler, what a fine broth of (laughs) a girl. That's a lovely name. County Kerry, is it? That's right. (laughs) The nephew is the one who goes to see Hitler before he takes power. And Hitler blows his cork at him and oh, says, "Son of Alias right?" And says that people must never know where I come from. Right? right, right. Which is one of those cryptic comments. If it's true, what the hell does he mean by that? Yeah. Does he mean, you know, are there Jews in the family? Are there people who are mentally ill or semi-retarded, feeble-minded? Uh, you know, well, he, you he was. It, there trouble. was. He was really afraid of his family tree. And it's not a question of, of what he was, I think. It's a question of what he feared he was.
0: You also mentioned sailing, and it made me think, here's FDR on the Hudson, learns to sail. Love the yacht, he has the presidential yacht eventually, but still he's learning to sail. He's going to the, he's going to the beach.
1: Campobello.
0: Oh, and here's Hitler. He says later, I'm a coward on the ocean. And I was thinking he probably didn't even see the ocean till later in life. Really, everywhere you look, in 1932, the rise of Hitler and FDR, we find something where they have almost nothing in common. Even being married, Hitler Hitler is very stunted with women and doesn't ever get married. Well, I guess he gets married very shortly well, yes. before the end. And, but he spends his honeymoon on fire in a ditch. So that's really very right. different from FDR's no, no. honeymoon. So even at, the, even at that, at the very end, they were still very, very different parallels. The key one is probably the moneyed political class and the military establishment as far as the march to World War II. Hitler suffers in the trenches, and despite the urging of Cousin Teddy, Franklin does not enlist, does not put on the uniform of the country in the Great War. He says he wanted to, but Wilson didn't want him to. He does serve as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, uses TR's desk, by the way, but this sets them apart, too, because Hitler yet again has another resentment. And that resentment is against that Prussian military class, the people who he starts to blame for things like his being homeless, for losing the war, for giving the war over, and for selling us out. And we know who that ultimately meant that he was blaming. So that's the politics here of your sub-sub headline, Two Tales of Politics, Betrayal, and Unlikely Destiny. How does that conflict, the Great War, influence them both Because that defines their generation. And here they are. They live through it. And then they aim for and achieve the pinnacle of power in their country.
1: Well, FDR moves very quickly from where we're sitting, being a state senator in upstate New York, Dutchess County, real Republican territory, even now. If he had run for another term, he would have gotten beaten. I'm convinced of that. He had to get out. And he jumps upward being this assistant secretary of the navy which is a job that Theodore had. You take a look at FDR emulating TR all the time. Gee, they both have six kids, okay? <laughs> TR's mother is from Georgia. I'm going down to live in Georgia. Okay. And you know, and the governor of New York, state legislature, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So FDR is in the Navy department. War breaks out. He's also meeting people in Washington where, you know, the revolutions are not made out in Poughkeepsie. They're made in the national capital. They're made in the national capital either of money or politics or whatever. And so he's there. He's making these contacts. He's learning how wars are fought, which is going to come in handy in a, a couple decades So he's growing in the job then. Hitler had been, as you said, this failed artist, and he's an immigrant. He's an undocumented immigrant, as a matter of fact. There was talk about sending him back to Austria, and they don't. He very quickly volunteers for service in the Bavarian Regiment. He had really been sort of a draft dodger, not registering for military service under the Austrians, because, as we've noted, he hated the Habsburgs. He was a, a Pan-German type guy, wanted all Germans in the in the this Prussianized, uh, militarized German Empire. Goes off to fight for them, and people would say that. You know, in Vienna, where he was essentially homeless or living very, uh, Hand very to poorly. Mouth. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in the gutter some nights or in a men's hostel that no one would pay any attention to anything he had to say. But then he comes out of the army in World War I and is Hitler. <laughs> he's, he's the guy that they all yeah. listen to him. And how is he transformed? And one of the, I think, the most amazing stories in the book and maybe it's true, maybe this is what happened, maybe it was cause, what was the cause, what was the effect, was there any effect, is that Hitler is blinded by poison gas at the end of the war. He spends the last weeks of the war in a hospital north of Berlin called Passowalk. Now, if he was just blinded, he would have been behind the front of the hospital. This passwalk seemed to be for mental cases. And there were, you know, a bunch of people in the war with shell shock and stuff. And most shell shock guys were, I don't want to go back. Seems logical. Okay, I wouldn't want to go back. Hitler wanted to keep up the fight, okay? His shell shock was something different, and his blindness may have been psychosomatic. And they're looking at his eyes and they're they're not seeing anything wrong. So they they actually hypnotize him and they say to him you stand for the fatherland you want us to win well if you want to help the fatherland you've got to get well you've got to see again because you only you can lead the fatherland to victory and this thing gets stuck in his brain and when he comes out all of a sudden he's the guy who is haranguing everyone and putting people on this road to perdition, actually. They did ask people who had served with him, people who turned out to be very faithful Nazis, not his enemies. They interviewed him when Hitler was in power or on the verge of power, and they say, so what was he like? Was he he a great leader then? And these guys burst out laughing. It's only after his blindness and his hypnotism and when he goes back into civilian life that he's the guy who is politically oriented. Before that, a failed artist. Which are a dime a dozen, and that's probably even
0: even cheaper. You know, people are at least aspiring artists, certainly. I mean, he was making
1: a living, but it wasn't, you know, he's sort of a bohemian, really.
0: Not as he defined success, I guess, is the difference. You know, you he know, wasn't. He wasn't. He's, happy. he's
1: living in some woman's spare room. You know, yeah. He's not living in the basement with his parents, but yeah. he's not far removed from that.
0: Yeah, he would have been if he liked them better, maybe. And well, if around. his mother father had not died, was, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So
1: he lived. I, he lived off their pension for quite a while in Vienna, and it was when that ran out, then then he was in the literally in the gutter.
0: The idea of him going and being hypnotized and treated there in that medical facility, and that he ends up when he does take power, he makes sure all those records are gotten rid of, and that the well, the people who treated him, I think him the might doctor, I think yeah. the
1: doctor treated Garing as well. Garing had some. Garing had some problems too. Not only uh, eating inter- disorder. No, uh, drug addiction. You know.
0: Yeah, yeah, a lot of that going yeah, on
1: yeah. with them. With well, morphine. Yeah. Uh, it was. Uh, he had been. Uh, Wounded in the war, and they give you morphine. They give you—they gave you too much. That's why, silent film actor Wallace Reed died from a drug overdose. It wasn't because he was like a bad guy, like shooting up to get you know for fun. It's because the doctor gave him you know too many painkillers. It still happens, so we know.
0: But when you hear morphine, you think, gosh, that you think of the morphine addict, right? If you were doing the word association. But I thought that with that with Hitler wanting to erase all that, it's always it's always so extreme, needless to say with Hitler you know he has that guy eliminated who might know and his records burned, who he went to therapy with. FDR also has medical, especially at the end of his life, things he wants to keep quiet. He doesn't want to people know too much about his health. He tries to keep it uh, at least at least not front and center. It's not as if it's a, a hidden conspiracy about him being in a wheelchair, but he doesn't he certainly doesn't
1: want to broadcast it absolutely not and he's writing the people when he's about ready to become president only a couple more years of treatment and i'll be able to to walk and it's like you know as i write i think you know he's it's not true whether he realizes it's not true or not i don't know but false hope is better than no hope at all i mean wouldn't you rather believe that like if i keep going at this I'm going to be able maybe to walk better than, than to be stuck in this wheelchair all the time. I mean, he does make a substantial recovery from where he was because he regained the, the use of his uh, upper legs and his stomach muscles, and I think even his face was, was paralyzed for a while. He was really on the, on the bubble right after coming down with polio. I also learned something in 1932, the rise of Hitler and
0: FDR, and that's where it's suspected. He got the polio is the Boy Scout camp, or what? when I was young anyway, and in the Boy Scouts, was the Boy Scout camp there in Alpine, New Jersey. So that changed my driving on 9W now, the highway there. You always (laughs) think of that. that. Yeah. I
1: always do, yeah. Wow.
0: That's something that he...
1: It, that, it didn't kick in until he went to Campobello, and then maybe if they had treated it a little differently, it wouldn't have been as severe. But who knows? I was just tweeting today, maybe you saw it, about how many kids from roughly my generation had polio. Famous people. Mitch McConnell. Yeah, I was going to say. Mr. Joni McConnell. Mitchell, Judy Collins, Neil Young, Cheetah Rivera, the dancer. So you could come back from it. He didn't come back as well as those kids. But could, you, you understand why our parents, particularly our mothers, were so terrified of that. And what a, what a great benefit that Salk vaccine was to the world. FDR also,
0: that great privileged background, this, in the eyes of people who would have known him, would have said, and I believe they did said, indeed, in 1932 in particular, the year we're talking about when he's running, Not that he wanted pity from people, but it certainly impacted how they saw him. No longer was he the guy who had everything, which a lot of people don't want to vote for. I look at, for instance, the first one that pops into my head is Mitt Romney. A lot of people like myself with a thinning hairline and, you know, you look at him and you go, man, that hair. (laughs) And I mean, I've I've met Mitt Romney and he was a nice guy, fine fellow, but I I said, man, that hair. (laughs) I'm jealous of that. Why does he have great hair? You know, (laughs) things like that when you see someone who just has everything. You're either a person like T.R., who people love, but even he had the childhood that it, that you could say, if he did it, I can do it. In fact, he wanted people to say that. But some people, you look at them and you say they have everything, and even if they don't carry themselves that way, it's hard to relate to them or think that they should be the one. You're just not going to support them. I think Averill Harriman
1: never got over that politically. Rockefeller was able to do it. He was able to wade into the crowds. hi Hiya, fella! And, and relate to people. But I think that's one of the things about unlikely destiny in the subtitle. Two tales of Hitler, obviously, on a million levels. But Franklin Roosevelt, well, yeah, he's got all those advantages. Yeah, but people just see him as a rich, spoiled twit, okay? And it's like, well, you we uh, know He's He's just not up for it. And then it becomes unlikely because, well, he's crippled you know, to put it bluntly, or as they used to, now everyone is handicapped or different or disabled or, you know, they changed the word. I remember back for a few years, I'd lost pretty much the use of my shoulder. It was really bad. And I would quote Bill Veck, who had lost a leg in the war. The owner of uh, the Chicago White Sox, the Cleveland Indians, he lost a leg in the Pacific. And he would say, I ain't handicapped. I'm crippled. It's like, don't massage this. With words this, this is the reality, and Franklin Roosevelt was crippled, and he got around it, and some people like Francis Perkins, his secretary of the labor, said this really elevated his attitude toward people. He had a lot more empathy to the people this was and another historian said that as T.R. changed himself from the spoiled rich kid in Dakota, Roosevelt does it at Warm Springs. This is the life-changing thing for him. So he gets that empathy for people. Uh,
0: Obviously, Hitler
1: never does.
0: Maybe because, hey, you you can't declare war on mosquitoes, right, and destroy polio, although he does. That effort is made, right, in the March of Dimes. But Hitler has people. He starts to list the people. And it's something, when last we spoke about your book, 1920, the year of the six presidents, One of the things that someone says in there about Woodrow Wilson is he's a good hater. If you want to get on his side, find someone he hates and walk into his office and say, oh, gosh, I hate that guy, you know, and that you'll bond over that. And then William McKinley, it was something I guess they said back then, which is interesting to me, because now we hear the term hater, but it's usually thrown at other people. Mm -hmm. That guy's a hater. You're a hater. But McKinley said. Uh, they asked him why he was forgiving of somebody, for instance, a reporter who'd written, a columnist who wrote terrible things about him, was standing outside a venue in the rain, and McKinley invites him inside his carriage, and he says, "Well, Mr. President, I don't think you know who I am," and you know, and he says, "Oh, I know who you are," he says, and he's like, "Well, I write terrible things about you," and McKinley says, "Well, yes, but now you can write them dry if you're in my <laughs> carriage," and someone says, "Why? Why are you nice to that guy? Why isn't there more smiting? If I was in <laughs> more smiting." Yeah. And McKinley says, oh, "I'm a poor hater," and Hitler seems to be a very good hater, and well, the, in he, a
1: true sense, he talks in Mein Kampf and over and over again about the power of propaganda, and in in that he's actually echoing some stuff that Theodore Roosevelt talks about, how you've got to reach the public, or you've got to have these broad brushes and not pastels and you know you've got to hammer a few big ideas into people over and over and over again the big lie okay and so propaganda and hating for him is a big deal and i think he genuinely hates two groups well i mean socialists and all the people from those vienna years when he's this struggling artist he he doesn't like the socialists he doesn't like, although he's national socialist, he doesn't like the Marxist socialists, always so should say. And Vienna is probably, next to New York City, the most cosmopolitan city on Earth. And it's cosmopolitan, you know, aside from the Germans in it. But you get a ton of Jews, fair percentage, probably over 10% of the population, and Slavs. And so he sees these people wandering around, and he's, he's wondering why are the Habsburgs soft on these people. There were certain groups in the empire who were quite loyal to the Habsburgs. In parliament, the Poles from Galicia, and also a lot of the Jewish population. So one of the reasons why Hitler would not like Habsburgs as much is because they weren't sufficiently crazy German racialists.
0: I mentioned the Boy Scout camp, and it reminded me of something you just spoke about, about how they dismissed FDR as an amiable Boy Scout, one man said, which brought to mind Speaker Tip O'Neill's dismissal of Ronald Reagan as an amiable dunce. Then you have journalist Dorothy Thompson, who dismisses Hitler in the same way. She says, little man, little man, you'll never be chancellor of Germany. Is there anything readers can learn from 1932, the rise of Hitler and FDR, to help us spot these qualities of, again, from your subhead, the unlikely destiny, when the temptation is to dismiss someone as a lightweight, or when everyone is saying, just step over to that bum in the street who maybe that's an FDR or Hitler?
1: Well, there are enough lightweights in the world, <laughs> and they never make it. And there are people who are heavyweights and substantial people. We were talking in our conversation about my book, 1920, The Year of the Six Presidents, about some guys who really didn't seem to want it that much, like Warren Harding. Okay, Harding didn't seem to want it that much, but it's the guys who really have the fire in the belly, who even though other people might say, oh, he's just some rich mama's boy like FDR or he's a a, a nobody, a, a, fa- a failed painter like Hitler or Reagan, where people get underestimated, but they really want it. And, you know, Reagan really wanted it, too. I mean, he comes in, you know, we're talking about, you know, Biden. How many times has he failed? How many times did Reagan fail for the presidency? I can't think of any guy who made it on the third try, you know. William Jennings Bryan doesn't make it. Henry Clay. You know, they, they have to give up, but he doesn't give up, and that tells you he wanted it. Hitler wanted it, and he was willing to kill millions of people for it, and FDR, in his own way, wanted it as well. When we last met here at the FDR Library and Museum,
0: we did speak about 1920, the year of the six presidents, and since you just mentioned it, It reminded me of FDR's run for vice president that year. He's one of the six presidents in that title. How did candidate Roosevelt in 1932 learn those skills and develop them to become a different candidate, a finer, honed candidate. You just mentioned running three times and nobody making it happen. But here he runs not for president, but he runs a national campaign, and a lot changes between 1920 and 1932. Yeah. What, what does he learn in those years that Hitler isn't learning while he's just stoking the hatreds?
1: FDR learns you know, not to get involved in every issue. He doesn't have to go to every fight and in the big fight he doesn't go to throughout the 1920s i mean he gets a lot of credit for repealing prohibition there was a book written about jfk and the civil rights movement which i love the title of i don't know how true it is or you know accurate or general called the bystander okay and throughout the 1920s franklin roosevelt was the bystander on prohibition he wasn't saying much about it if anything he's just steering clear of the whole thing and he knew to avoid issues he also knew when he would be attacked by a candidate for governor in 1930 uh, that he would not mention the guy you know kill him with silence not have to go off on every every way. So he becomes incredibly cagey. One of the early big bios of Franklin Roosevelt is called Roosevelt the Lion and the Fox. So he becomes the Fox. Hitler is also the Fox in 1932. You take a look at it, and he doesn't make many mistakes electorally. He plays the cards right. There's only one moment in 1932 where he goes off the rails, where the mask falls off. There is an incident in Silesia, eastern Germany, which was mixed population. And one night, a bunch of Nazis burst into the home of a communist of Polish ethnicity in front of his mother. They just beat him completely to death. I mean... You you read the account of what his body looked like, and it's really one of the grislier things I've ever included. And these guys are tried, the Nazis, the murderers, and they're let off very easily. And Hitler is asked the question the politicians get asked all the time, do you disassociate yourself from this? And his answer is basically, no, never. Not at all. And at that point, a lot of the more conventional nationalist right-wing people in Germany start to fall away from him for a while because that's his one mistake. But otherwise, he's making deals. He's not overplaying his hand. He's not acting too crazy. And eventually that's going to get him in as the incredible Byzantine nature of Weimar politics leads to everybody eliminating everybody else. Nobody's going to work with... Everyone hates each other. That's the beauty of a two-party system. You're forced to work with people who you may not be crazy about at the end of the game. But in this Weimar system, you had like 30 or so parties running and 14 parties getting into parliament. There's an interesting speech, I think you can see it on YouTube, where Hitler is promising some would say threatening others he was promising to get rid of all the other parties because it was just such a mess saying it openly but the socialists wouldn't work with the communists the nationalists for a while wouldn't work with hitler the catholic party wouldn't work with this one and so it was left with at the end of the day well give it to him and see if he can make it work and don't worry we'll box him in we'll control him again because they're underestimating him you mentioned the fox and i thought about all the things hitler had that had wolf in the name yes he saw himself as that so that's something and with hair wolf yeah would, that would be his alias when i think he met ava brown and with
0: his negotiation style which you don't think of and there was a book i did nate stolfus was the author hitler's compromises and you don't think of Hitler as compromising. And when I spoke to him, and he's a scholar, and obviously this wasn't meant to be apologetic, but I said, that's interesting, because you don't think of Hitler as a compromiser, working deals, something we mentioned in our last talk about 1920, Woodrow Wilson does not do. But Hitler would try to persuade and work, and that's the politics there in the subhead. He's not just somebody...
1: He'll zig and zag. I mean, the biggest zigzag is the Hitler-Stalin pact, It's like, okay... We'll settle this for now, and then we'll, we'll attack him in two years. One of the least popular things he does as chancellor is another non-aggression pact. Right on, in like 1934 or so, he signs a non-aggression pact with Poland. The interwar Germans hate Poland, and this really knocks his popularity down a notch. But he's willing to do it just because, eh, I'll do what I want to do later
0: yeah it's just a piece of paper as it right. says. right general zigzag by the way and if you did a stereotypical german accent from one of those 40s movies would have been really funny right the great dictator charlie chaplin does that whole well the whole movie right is him playing the two parts and being, being the dictator and mocking it yeah it's so great from i forgot what the name of the of the country is the fictitious name is uh, it, nature
1: is it Tomania or is that the one that Jack Hokey has? That might be Duck No, that's Fredonia.
0: Okay. Ah, see. This is why now all the movies use San Marcos, right? All the Woody Allen and other movies as a made-up Latin American country. But that's something that here this guy has that buffoonish image for a long time. And now here we can look at him and say, while he's still a warning from the past, a big screaming mustachioed warning, You can compare him and see what he really did to get there, because I think like the great men in history, you say, well, they're great. You know, Martin Luther King's birthday comes and people say, I I couldn't be like that. Well, I I think that can go too far and let us off the hook where we say, well, hey, they were great. A Churchill was great. A Lincoln was great. An FDR, I, I could never be like that. And the same thing with some of these people, the underlings of Hitler, where you say, well, they were just evil. And so I always, not that that's not fine to say that they were evil, they certainly were, but I think to understand how a person who was just another bum in the street somehow grew to be this guy and also then how FDR maneuvers in his life and comes, overcomes these problems. there It's it's really something we can learn either positively or negatively from their example. Well, Hitler
1: will, he makes the statement when he takes power that if you weren't with him before, come on in, come on in. And there are some people who joined the party very late and rise. You know, it's not like, oh, you had to be with me from day one and you were with some other party. Like halle shocked. I, I don't think he joined the party ever and he was a big finance guy. It's also interesting, Well, I mentioned that Roosevelt had been to Germany so he had some knowledge of, of what was going on there and Hitler had a bunch of advisors who had, you know, I mean, he's very provincial. I mean, he never goes beyond the Eiffel Tower, you know, and then he's back in a half an hour when when France falls. But he has advisors who who had been to America. Putzi Haufstangl, who was a a big art dealer and an early funder of the Nazi party and one of his press chiefs, had lived in America for quite a while and used to go to the Harvard Club with Franklin D. Roosevelt. Okay? (sighs) And— Ribbentrop, in writing this book, I I did not realize that Ribbentrop had been living in New York City. Joachim von Ribbentrop, the foreign minister of Germany, was living in New York City and and doing newspaper work before 1914. And there's a, a kind of seedy kind of Nazi called Kurt Ludwig, who comes back to Germany. He'd been an early Nazi, leaves to go to America, And there's a a passage in the book where they're riding in a car. And uh, Ludicke is uh, talking to Hitler about what America is like. And Hitler is actually listening. One of the things they're talking about is prohibition. And Ludicke makes the point that he's a teetotaler, but it's like, again, he's willing to compromise. He knows enough. You're not going to do prohibition (laughs) with the German people. But one thing Hitler never grasps, and these Nazis never grasp it's how big and powerful and ticked off America can get. And, like, don't mess with us. They never quite grasp that.
0: I love the names and their meanings. You were just mentioning some of those underlings. One figure that I wanted to pull out of 1932, the rise of Hitler and FDR, is Kurt Von Schleicher. If this was a novel, this would be perfect. That would be the perfect name to give it. Him. Would be.
1: If it were a bad <laughs> novel, it would be perfect. <laughs> So who is he, and what does his name mean? He means Schemer. Wow, or schemer or Creeper or, you know, just a kind of slimy, double-crossing guy. <laughs> and he's, oddly enough, a slimy, double-crossing guy. He'd been a um, military officer, career. If they had a deep state in Weimar, he'd be in it. He'd be one of those bureaucrats who'd be just playing his own game, And for quite a while, playing it very well. Early on in Weimar, there was a general who was running the military named von Siecht. And Schleicher is working for him. And then around 1926, he sabotages his career. He keeps moving up under a general called Groener, who had been really probably the brains behind Germany's victory at Tannenberg, which Hindenburg got all the credit for. And they rise up. Around 1929, Weimar politics, government starts to, democracy starts to collapse. But up until that point, they had elections, everything's fine, and Hindenburg is president. The socialists are about to take over the government, but there are like three provisions of the Weimar Constitution, which can just blow the whole thing up if they're put together. And they are, the president can rule by decree. It can be overridden, but good luck with that by the Reichstag. And he can appoint the prime minister, and he can dissolve the parliament. So it's like, if you don't like what I'm doing with the prime minister, I'll just, I'll just make you run again, and maybe you will lose your seat in the Great Depression, feeling lucky punk, okay? <laughs> and this works very well to make Weimar Germany a dictatorship of the president even before Hitler gets there under Hindenburg. So Schleicher is working with a fellow named Bruning, who is with the Catholic Center Party, and is really a pretty responsible guy. He's the chancellor for a year or, or, or about four years. And then his government collapses. Hindenburg had said he was the greatest prime minister or chancellor since Bismarck. But he's gone because Schleicher is undercutting him. He undercuts Groner, the general who had been one of his protégés, and he installs a guy named Franz von Papen. Von Papen lasts for a while, and then Schleicher undercuts him and becomes chancellor of Germany in 1932. But by now, the system is completely unworkable. The Nazis are the biggest party in the Reichstag, and, you know, everyone is, is walking on very thin ice. What he does is he underestimates von Papen, who was this nobody who had been, like, elevated from, you know, it's like some second-term state legislature legislator had become president <laughs> of the United States all of a sudden, uh, out of nowhere. Von Papen was not considered to be a serious person. But when Schleicher knifes him... He knifes Schleicher with Hindenburg and determines, okay, I'll get rid of Schleicher, and then I will put together this plan of boxing in Hitler. Hitler can be chancellor. He's head of the largest party, okay. There'll be a cabinet of eight, and there'll only be two Nazis in there, one of which will be Gehring, Minister Without Portfolio, so you can sit in the room, but you're not got any power. And I will be this new office, Vice-Chancellor. And the deal will be Hitler can only talk to Hindenburg, who has the real power, if I'm in the room. So what could go wrong? What goes wrong is they've underestimated Hitler again. He takes control of everything. And then in the night of the long knives, almost kills von Papen, but definitely kills von Schleicher, who answers the doorbell. Bang, bang, two bullets. He goes down. And because they're Nazis then they shoot the wife. They shoot von Schleicher's wife. So welcome to the Third Reich, boys and girls.
0: You're listening to my conversation with David Petruccia about his book, 1932, The Rise of Hitler and FDR, Two Tales of Politics, Betrayal, and Unlikely Destiny. We're at the FDR Presidential Library and Museum, you can visit yourself to explore the legacy of America's 32nd Chief Executive or check it out online to plan that trip at fdrlibrary.org. And you can follow our guest at dpetruzia on Twitter or DavidPetrusia.com. Columnist and film critic Ivan Denisoff writes of the book, 1932 confirmed my belief that David Petrusia is the best historian of our times. Deep, clever, witty, master of the subject. David, witty is certainly how you write, and I like that. Now, in our 1920 interview, I casually compared 1920 and you reaching the milestone to Prince, which is probably the only time you've been compared to Prince before. That would be true. (laughs) And when he wrote 1999 in the mid-'80s, I think that was 82. And then looking forward to that milestone year. Here, when I read your books... I picture you breaking the fourth wall like Alan Hale Jr. in Gilligan's Island because here's a gregarious guy. He's a a nice guy. And he could do it subtly, so even though obviously the show was a farce and you knew they weren't really deserted on an island, it didn't suck you out of it and it made you feel part of the show. It certainly did to me as a young kid when I used to watch those. And so now here I'm a big kid, right? And I have to be an adult and have things like car keys and insurance and everything. So I like that in a book, especially a book like 1932, The Rise of Hitler and FDR, Because they're heavy subjects, right? We're dealing with with matters of war here and genocide in the case of Hitler and FDR and the things that that he's doing. How do you go about getting that tone right? How do you know when to be witty and clever and when it's going to be maybe too far? Is it something that comes in the editing process?
1: Well, when I think of Gilligan's Island uh, here at the FDR library, I think of Thurston Howell III. My friends. What this island needs is a president like me, one who is brave, true, loyal, devoted, and faithful, and above all, modest. (laughs) That The guy who talked sort of like Thurston Howell III could become president of the United States. And, you know, why Mitt Romney couldn't. How was he able to pull off the rise to power with this amazingly upper class background you know just up the road is the vanderbilt mansion and it was said of the dynamics here of living in hyde park that the vanderbilts had more money but the roosevelts were snootier <laughs> so <laughs> so anyway escaping from gilligan's island um in breaking the fourth wall I think my breaking of the fourth wall experience is actually from being a huge fan of the Marx Brothers. That's why I knew the Fredonia (laughs) reference earlier. And he would regularly do that in films and speak directly to the audience. So I don't know if I speak directly to the audience, but yeah, I will pop out with little asides. And, you know, I try to keep it interesting. And uh, many a time I've asked myself in going through a book, should I put this in? Usually it's about something which might be controversial or maybe just a little, not what the big boy historians would do, the big serious (laughs) historians, because it's interesting. The point may be telling. You want to keep the readership awake. And it's like, you know, if you find a good restaurant, you want to share it with your friends. And so my readers are like my imaginary friends. And it's like, here, look what I found. And, I, and you might find this interesting as well. And look what I found to be ironic or funny. And, you know, let's have some fun with this and let's not take everything I write too seriously.
0: And it's not a textbook after all. It should be entertaining, right?
1: No. And, I, and I'm not an academic.
0: I don't think we've mentioned that.
1: I'm not an <laughs> academic.
0: And by the way, the American Culinary Institute and many great restaurants right around the FDR Library and yeah. Museum here definitely worth.
1: But Eleanor never attended the Culinary <laughs> Institute of America as far as I heard.
0: I want to mention a fascinating moment in 1932. I guess
1: that's one of those fourth wall comments, isn't it?
0: <laughs> Yeah, well, you can hear them here. Sometimes people save those for interviews, yeah. you know, and they say, hey, they, they think they have to be serious if they're talking on some smart show, you know, right. or something. I May mean, I hope that this is uh, intelligent, but you don't have to put on an air here because we're talking just about people. So, is the bottom line. There's a fascinating discovery here that I don't want to overlook, and that's happening right at the FDR library. They're going through the library, see the books and things. As you do, you curate, right? Franklin Roosevelt's copy of Mein Kampf, an English language translation of it, they come across it and it's not just, oh, okay, he had this on his shelf. Did he read it? And then you open it, you find notes in the margins. Right. FDR points out that the English language version changed some of the items that were in the original text. And that tells me, and well, it also told me because I read it in your book, that... He'd read with attention to detail Hitler's book in the original German. What is that observation? What did that book, that copy of Mein Kampf in English, tell us about FDR and his insights into Hitler in Germany?
1: That he was following this guy's career fairly early on. He had the reputation of reading, like, detective stories or just junk and not being a deep thinker, but that he was a forward enough thinker to... Be tracking this guy's career. You know, it's not like Hitler was going to be a delegate from the Wisconsin Democratic Party at the convention in 32, but, but he was still looking forward to the world as a whole. Politically, Roosevelt was not looking forward or talking about foreign affairs in 1932. The game was put all the blame on Hoover and make everything domestic politics, because that's what people were interested in. But here, he was showing himself to be a global thinker. Technological
0: innovations can often turn the tide of an election. Who's going to be the first, for instance, to be on the internet? It was Bob Dole in 1996. It was the first candidate Bob to Dole. mention. <laughs> Bob Dole. was the first candidate to mention his website, Dole Kemp. That website is still up, which is a kind of an interesting relic of the Internet. It's just still up there with its old-fashioned, old timing <laughs> mid-'90s GIFs and layout. There are two innovations that these candidates make Bob use Dole. of.
1: Bob Dole loves clip art. <laughs>
0: <laughs> See, that's that's the Alan Hale right there. <laughs> right? That's the skipper. I mean, I want everyone to picture you from here on out wearing that skipper hat when they're listening to you and reading your books. In 1932, the rise of Hitler and FDR, we see the two candidates make use of radio and airplanes. That's something to look forward to. Also, films. You spoke earlier in our interview about 1920 about going down and you know you'd get a record and they'd spin Calvin Coolidge's speech for you down at the down at the rec center or what have you. you. Could you could hear the voice of the people that you were voting for for the first time? Roosevelt certainly makes use of that in his fireside chats. Hitler has Hitler. Yeah, hey, we over got Germany. sound. We
1: got sound films. Uh, yeah from like 1927 28 on so we can you know both of these guys are their voice that's a key thing and then you got herbert hoover's voice or some of these germans you know droning on and on and on (laughs) in america you've got roosevelt on the air and he's really good at that he's going to have the fireside chats he had yeah i think he already pioneered that as governor of new york so he's you know warming up his act in the, uh, in the boonies in Albany. But Hitler does not have that advantage. State-run media, okay? So the radio stations are under, under the control of the German government, and they're smart enough for once not to let the, the Nazis <laughs> on. The first Nazi, I think, to speak is either Goebbels or Gregor Strasser, another one of these fellows who is going to be killed by Hitler in the night of the long knives. But Hitler can't go on the radio himself. But what he can do during his campaign against Hindenburg is to get into an airplane and be flown all around Germany. It's a very short. It's like one of those snap elections where they have in foreign countries as opposed to like in America where each election for the presidency goes on for several hundred years. Okay, but so Hitler had like, oh, just a few weeks to uh, run against Hindenburg. And he gets in his plane and hops all over Germany. And the slogan is coined, Hitler over Germany. And that has two meanings. One, he's flying over Germany. He's like the modern hip guy. And or he's going to be ruling over Germany. Franklin Roosevelt, who had flown over Missouri or somewhere in 1920 as a vice presidential candidate, gets into an airplane in Albany when he hears he's been nominated by the Democrats in Chicago. And it's a good thing he had been a sailor because some people on the plane get airsick, but he doesn't. The flight is so primitive that he has to stop in Buffalo and he has to stop in Cleveland and he finally gets there. And that's when he, again, is this modern sort of guy like Hitler who can utilize the technology break traditions break precedents and address the convention in person so it's a, it's a galvanizing thing for both guys they both use the airplane Early, and they both use catchy jingles, those German marching bands that we've all heard on, on all the newsreels and the horse Vessel lead uh, propaganda songs. And uh, Roosevelt wanted to uh, have as his theme song, because he had been that assistant secretary of the Navy, Anchors Away. And they start playing it at the convention, and it's like a funeral dirge. And <laughs> yes. His aides are just yelling and throwing stuff at the organist, who, by the way, has several fingers missing. Maybe that was the problem. <laughs> but then somebody yells at him, Play Happy Days are here again! And that becomes the hit song of 1932. and It's a, a great song, you know, to get things moving again. and uh, Make America Great Again in 1932.
0: Talk about nothing old being new, necessarily, or things being reused, I guess, in politics is a better way to put it. And Ronald Reagan in 1980, he knew that was a great song, and he used it. And they said, but but FDR used it. That's a Democrat he song. You know, some people. Yeah, sure, and he was a Democrat back he, then. That's and that, right. You talk about two meanings of Hitler over Germany. There you go. It's a reminder this guy is friendly it's uh you know if you're a democrat if you loved fdr and he used to say that thing about the i didn't leave the party they left me so that song really works and it is a catchy tune it's still catchy yeah also we mentioned moving images mentioned movies with the sound attached there are two movies
1: Gabriel, oh, yeah.
0: Gabriel over the White House is one of them he mentioned in 1932, the rise of Hitler and FDR. The other is Mussolini Speaks, and you get from that exactly what we were just talking about. Here's a guy, the Socialist Party's not good. I'm going to make my own new party, and I'm going to have blackjack and such, and you know, I'm going to have black shirts anyway.
1: And Blackjacks too.
0: Yeah. yeah he's going to be raising hell that way by uh, trying to reform socialism uh, in the literal sense of reforming it. But... That Gabriel over the White House, that's the interesting one because that's one that FDR plays. So tell us briefly about that movie and why FDR plays it.
1: Mussolini Speaks, by the way, is basically an infomercial for fascism, and it's made by, I think, Fox Studios, William Fox, Jewish company.
0: Yeah, and since we're talking about the early films, the early talking films that these politicians used to get their message across, Let's roll a clip of that 1933 movie starring the inventor of fascism and the inspiration for Hitler, who at the time, his early days here in 1932, the rise of Hitler and FDR, they called Hitler the German Mussolini, which may seem surprising to people listening today. And the man they called El Duce, the dictator of Italy. Mussolini's been in power for 10 years at that point. Here he is, and he's speaking to us in English. Here we go.
1: I am very glad to be able to express my friendly feelings towards the American nation. Friendship which Italy looks at the millions of citizens who from Alaska to Florida, from the Pacific to the Atlantic, live in the United States, is today deeply rooted in our hearts. Mussolini speaks, it's narrated by Lowell Thomas, and makes a ton of money in the Depression. It was cheap to make. It was cheap to make, and people just yeah, ate it up. In so, the depression. In so the like depression. Million or something. Yeah, well, half a million or that's it, it. You could make money that way. So Gabriel over the White House was financed by William Randolph Hearst, who had been in the film business, usually to make films for his girlfriend Marion Davies. But he bankrolls this thing, and it is about a kind of Warren Harding type president who is in an auto accident and wakes up as a Franklin D. Roosevelt, William Randolph (laughs) Hearst, Adolf Hitler president, who is, is going to take it to big business and the existing parties and the corruption and to everybody and establish essentially a dictatorship. And it's also part of a genre of films. I think the term is formed much later called vigilante films where people start taking the law and order into their own hands there's one film where you know the gangsters literally get mowed down and both of those stars are with walter houston so walter houston is the president in this film and he's like threatening all the foreign nations to disarm they have gangsters they still have bootleggers then and I think the most absurd episode in the film is when the bootleggers pull up on the driveway of the White House and start machine gunning the White House. <laughs> and then there's this Realistic. this really fascist looking court of justice. You know, you sort of see Roland Freisler from, you know, the Hitler bomb plot trials up there. And he sends all the uh, gangsters out to be just shot, executed, you know, in a sort of kangaroo court. So. The nation is in a mood or elements of it for a dictatorship. Al Smith, who was a bitter enemy by now of FDR is writing after FDR's election, you know, we could get rid of the Constitution, we need powers invested in the executive to get everything up and running. And so there's there's a lot of talk about, you know, what is democracy going to be like in this great crisis? And to FDR's credit is he doesn't go down that path. I mean, he will make mistakes uh, later on with the court packing scheme And uh, the purge of the Democrats, the recalcitrant Democrats in 1938. But he's not going to misstep into destroying American democracy in 1933 for one reason. He doesn't have to because he's got this huge majority, which is going to get even bigger after the 1934 and 1936 election.
0: He screens this movie, doesn't
1: he? He screens it in the White House a couple of times for congressmen. And William Randolph Hearst had sent him the script to punch up the script. (laughs) Uh, You know, this is uh, problematical. (laughs)
0: More notes in the margin. Yeah. I wanted to mention the two letters that Franklin Roosevelt, as president, writes to Adolf Hitler as chancellor. Roosevelt's asking for assurances that Hitler will stay within the borders of Germany. What a concept, right? And warning of another war saying, Hey, you were in the last war. You know how disastrous it was for Germany and the world. Behave. So he writes those two letters. The second one, famously, Hitler goes to the Reichstag and reads the list. You're rolling your eyes.
1: So Hitler had great timing in that speech. I don't even know what he's saying. And it's (laughs) like, it's like this guy's on a roll.
0: Yeah. He's, he lists all the countries that FDR writes down. For some reason, he lists all the countries you promise you won't invade. And he starts reading them. And of course, they all burst out laughing. Let me play a little clip of Hitler listing those, because people will get an
1: idea. Herr Roosevelt verlangt endlich die Bereitwilligkeit, ihm die Zusicherung zu geben, dass die deutschen Streitkräfte das Staatsgebiet folgender unabhängiger Nationen nicht angreifen. Und er nennt Finnland, Lettland, Litauen, Estland, Norwegen, Schweden, Denmark, Niederlande, Belgien, Großbritannien, Irland, Frankreich, Portugal, Spanien, die Schweiz, Liechtenstein, Luxemburg, Polen, Ungarn, Rumänien, Yugoslavien, Russland, Bulgarien, Türkei, Irak, Arabien, Syrien, Palestina, Egypt. and you're right. It was, it was excellent time. And, and, and it's like, that clip. the countries aren't even in alphabetical order. You're not sure.
0: <laughs> Where did this
1: ones. list come from? This is, Lichtenstein, (laughs) Iran, I mean, Ireland. No wonder the Reichstag is cracking up. Fredonia? A little editing. A little
0: editing, Frank. Now, you say editing, and that brings me to my question here. I want you to take off your voter hat that you're fond of wearing and put on your political advisor hat because you do have in addition to your many talents and hats you do have your he's looking around for the hat now ladies and gentlemen you have had a career in politics if you picked up that letter what would you recommend to franklin roosevelt he calls you into his office the oval office by this point and he says hey i'm gonna write this letter what do you think of it and you say to him well And you may make your suggestions. That's one thing. But in this situation, you know Franklin Roosevelt really well, having written 1932. You know how to be persuasive. So how would you pitch this to him to have him change a little of this there? Maybe let's not worry about Liechtenstein. Let's just list (laughs) the countries that are right next to Germany. Maybe start with those. What would you do to be and How would you pitch it to be persuasive to the president at that point?
1: I'd say this would be great as a radio address. Ah. OK, you've got to read this over to Hitler on the airwaves because you're really reading it to the American public. And because of that, you've got to tighten it up just a little, not to lose any of the great things you've got in there, Mr. <laughs> President, because there are uh, it's going to be hard to decide. But, you know, just cut it. <laughs> but convince him it's his idea. Maybe That's right, yes.
0: And would you have him read it in German as well? Because he he's fluent in German, right? FDR? Or at least could be. Well you could again.
1: put that, you could put that on the short wave, yeah. But yeah. and direct it to the German people if it could get through.
0: We have time for one final question, and it's a brief one, but an important one. You end nineteen thirty-two, the rise of Hitler and FDR, with a section entitled An Epilogue of Blood. What do you hope readers will learn from the very different deaths of these two leaders just a couple weeks apart in 1945?
1: Roosevelt, of course, fortune has favored him in 1945 and the Allies. He's looking forward. He's always optimistic. The Nazis, more so even than Hitler, if you take a look at a list of how many of not only the top leaders, but the mayors and deputy undersecretary of knockwurst, <laughs> you know, kill themselves. This is a very unchristian, unreligious un-religious group of people. And it's been said of the Nazis, they didn't do life very well, but they did death very well. It was a culture of death, always celebrating death. And their legacy was... 10 million dead in the holocaust and who knows how many million more dead and good riddance well
0: david Petrusha, author of 1932 the rise of hitler and fdr thank you so much and special thanks to the fdr presidential library and museum for hosting our conversation and i just love your books thanks for writing them
1: thank you This is London Court. Here is a news flash. The German radio has just announced that Hitler is dead. I'll repeat that. The German radio has just announced that Hitler here again.
0: Happy
1: days are here again.
0: again the book is 1932 the rise of hitler and fdr two tales of politics betrayal and unlikely destiny as always You can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy on this episode's page at historyauthor.com. By buying books through us, you're helping us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. On behalf of David Petruccia and myself, thanks to the FDR Library and Museum for hosting our conversation, giving us the chance to share the story of two very different men, on two very different paths in a single crucial year of the 20th century. Visit our guest online at dpatrusha on Twitter or davidpatrusha.com. That last name is spelled P I E T R U S Z A. FDRLibrary.org is the website for today's venue, and you can follow them at FDRLibrary on Twitter. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at Dean, on Instagram at The History Author Show, or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this installment of The History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together...
1: Bridget <laughs> Hitler. What a fine broth of a girl. He <laughs> could, there was a painter. He could paint an entire apartment in Good one
0: afternoon, two coats.